beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And the voice came from heaven. You are my son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. At once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels attended him. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Bailey. I like having cheerleaders. That's good. Well, today we're starting a series in the Gospel of Mark. Um, we're going to spend a lot of time in Mark this year. And um, Mark sort of comes right out of the gate uh, with verse 1 and says, The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. And then he goes on to talk about how it's written in Isaiah, and then we learn about John the Baptist, we hear God the Father speak, we see the Spirit descend, and we see Jesus embark on this journey. Um, Mark is using these words, he says, the beginning of, the, of this message. Um, for, the old te- for the person who heard this in the original audience, they absolutely would have thought to themselves, wait a minute, I've heard that before, right? Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Like, Mark is cueing everybody who's listening up for this. What the gospel of Mark is about is so significant, it's like a new age. Like, this is is a big deal. This story that you're about to hear, and you're about to follow, and you're about to listen to, is absolutely transformative. And Mark is writing to this audience that is, well, it's, it's a really pluralistic audience in a lot of ways a lot of different people with different opinions you know there's the romans and you've seen plenty of tv with the caesar cuts and all that stuff right the romans were interested in military conquest they were interested in expanding the empire Uh, they made their presence known to everyone around hey see the guys with the swords this is the most important thing to you in fact caesar was referred to as a god man himself and you were you were to give your loyalty to him so mark's writing into this context where there's Uh, folks who are absolutely committed to the Roman Empire expanding. And then he's talking to the Greco-Roman philosophers, right? And these Greco-Roman philosophers are committed, and many of them adhere to, this idea of what's called Platonic dualism, okay? You don't need to remember that. You just need to remember this, that they thought that the physical was bad and the spiritual was good. They thought the physical was to be shunned and the spiritual was to be celebrated. And so, you know, you've probably seen some of that in our own culture where people do that. The thing is, is that's entirely opposite of the Bible. 
Remember, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, the galaxies, the fishies, the birdies, the grass, the trees. God very much calls the physical good. So there's this philosophy that's out there that's pushing up against even what God says is good as being bad and then overemphasizing the spiritual. So there's the Roman Empire and there's these Platonic dualists. And then there's the religious folks, right? Primarily these Sadducees and Pharisees. And their approach to reality and approaching God looks like this. If you're good enough, if you follow the rules enough, if you can establish your own righteousness enough, God will take interest in you. God will be faithful to you if you can be faithful. And Mark is writing this message into all of these people. And he's saying, listen, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah and the Son of God, this is completely different. In our own culture, we deal with some of this stuff, right? Like if I was going to ask you, do not do this, by the way. If I said, hey, raise your hand if you're, a Demo- if you're a Democrat. Raise your hand if you're a Republican, right? Like there are things we use that divide us, um, that can make us kind of discount one another, right? Or the idea of achievement. We live in a culture that says you are very much defined by how much achievement you can gather in your life. And that just, that's going to determine how impressed I am with you or not impressed with you. Philosophy. Atheism is often referred to as the most honest of philosophical approaches. You know, that's really not what we believe. And then take our, take religion. I wish that Christians were known for being the most gracious and most compassionate and most kind and most tender and most forgiving and most humble kinds of people. Oftentimes, sadly, we're not known for that. And so this message of Mark comes into kind of a similar environment in our own hearts as it went into the first century. And what we see is that Mark is writing into a wilderness. Now, when you think about wilderness, what comes to mind? Think about a picture of wilderness in your head. We all know where wilderness starts, and you know when you've left a wilderness, and you know when you're in the midst of a wilderness. But why are wildernesses so difficult? Why are they so scary? Because oftentimes you really don't know what you're going to face when you're in there. Like, there's dangers there. It's precarious. There's things to watch out for. Mark is riding into a wilderness. Isaiah was in a wilderness, which we read about. Um, John the Baptist comes out of a wilderness. Jesus himself goes back into a wilderness. Are you seeing the theme? That what God is doing is right in the midst of wilderness. You know, some of you have probably met my wife, but several times she's taken a group of girls up to a camp called Wilderness, and they go on this backpacking trip, okay? And so they set up their backpacks, and I think one of the trips she did was like 30 miles, and they go backpacking across the Rockies, And all the girls get there the day before and they pack their bags, they put food in there and sleeping bags and all this stuff and their great boots and they begin their trek and they know the path, we're going to walk this path, we're going to start here, we're going to end here and we're not going to bathe for seven days but we'll bathe in seven days. Like they know the whole path of the experience. And Jamie on her first day, she's walking out, she's got her new boots, they're amazing, her backpack, she comes up to a river. And if you've ever gone backpacking with with a large backpack, when you get to a river, what do you need to do? You need to take off your hip belt because you probably won't, but you might fall in the water. And if you do fall in the water, you don't want that backpack on you. Well, Jamie stepped in this river that um, had some rocks. And when you hit a rock, if you hit it wrong, guess what happens? You fall over and she fell over in this river and her backpack started to go down the river and the girls got her out. And that began this journey for her of going on wilderness with these girls that included taking a different path because the wolves were getting too close at night, sleeping under a rain fly where rain was coming off the edges and she had to sleep with water going in her face, Um, blisters on her feet and finally making her way out like they did that for fun on purpose right (laughs) sometimes it kind of is fun 
But I want you to think for a moment about the concept of wilderness. Like, are you in a wilderness? What kind of wildernesses do we see in this text? Mark chapter 1, the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. Mark is coming in and he's saying, listen, there's something to anticipate here. There's something to to, uh, celebrate here. There's a fulfillment here. You see, Mark has been longing for this to be true. And what he's announcing is the wilderness experience of wondering what God's going to do. How we're going to be able to relate to God. What it's going to mean to know him. Uh, what it w- could really look like to even be a part, uh, united with God. What's that look like? Mark is saying we're coming out of that wilderness. This is the beginning of some good news. Jesus, who is the Messiah and who is the Son of God, has come. And then Mark talks about Isaiah in verse 2. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for him. Isaiah, who you know, came at least 800 years before John, is, is prophesying that there's going to be one who comes who's going to be a voice crying out in the wilderness. There's going to be a messenger, and he's going to point you the way to find access to God in a way that you can barely imagine. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for him. John comes, Isaiah's prophesying, and there's going to be one who comes who points towards this Messiah. Isaiah, who's this prophet from centuries before, why does Mark put that in this text? Why does Mark quote Isaiah? One of the reasons is because he wants wants us to realize that the message we're discovering in Mark is rooted in something that's way beyond Mark's present. Right? Mark is saying, hey, this is happening now. This thing that that was promised so long ago is actually happening. It's rooted, in, it's rooted in something past the present. It's rooted in something even before their past, before Mark's past, before our past, before Isaiah's past, and it's rooted in something beyond their future. The thing about Jesus is that Isaiah's prophesying about him, John's pointing towards him, and the things that he actually does surprise everybody. Jesus does a lot of the unexpected, as we'll discover. So then we come to John the Baptist in verse 4 and following. And to John the Baptist appears in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem go out to him. They're confessing their sins. They're baptized by him in the Jordan River. What's going on with that? John was a weird dude, if you didn't pick up on that, right? He wears camel hair, a leather belt. I don't know how stylish it was. He had locusts, put honey on them and ate them, and then came out to baptize people in this river. Why did he do that? Part of, why, the, part of why he did it was because God had done this with his people to, to, to practice this experience of repentance. That's all this baptism is about, a baptism of repentance. And repentance means to turn towards God. Whether you're someone who's been ignoring God for many, many years, or if you're someone who just you know, is struggling with just normal spiritual struggles of loving God well and loving one another, all of us are in a place where we need to think about where must I turn to God. That's why we confess our sins each week in the order of worship right? It's a practice of us saying we're going to turn towards God. Well, for the people here, um, they're being baptized as a sign of repentance, and they're being baptized with water. And John says, after me comes one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. What John is saying is turning towards God is a good thing, absolutely, but I'm baptizing with water. And what does water do? It dries up. 
it evaporates. You're going to need to come back for more. But there's one who's coming who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Do you understand how wonderful that is? What John is saying is there is a time coming where you will be able to clearly understand that God is with you. That God is for you. That His Holy Spirit dwells within you and that you have access to Him. You won't just be covered and baptized in water. You'll be covered and baptized by the power of the Spirit. This is an incredible promise. And then we come to Jesus. Verse 9, at that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. And then at once the Spirit sends out Jesus into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness for 40 days, tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and the, and the angels attended him. So Jesus goes to the Jordan to be baptized. Why? Why does Jesus go to the Jordan to be baptized? Is Jesus going to the Jordan to be baptized because he wants to turn back to his father? No. You know, we, we read in the scriptures that Jesus was without sin. So why is Jesus going to be baptized in the Jordan where everyone's going as a baptism of repentance? Well, part of it is the fulfillment of the promises that God had made to Isaiah, right? There's a promise that one day he will come, a voice will cry out from the wilderness, he will point out who the Son of God is, and people will see, and this will be the path. And Jesus is fulfilling that. But there's another reason, a more powerful reason, and we see the results of that reason, of why Jesus went to be baptized. Here it is. Jesus, in Jesus being baptized, what it is showing us is that we are united to Christ at our core. That is what, that what is true of him is true of us, that we are in one body. As Jesus says in John chapter 15, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me, you'll bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. This is a constant New Testament theme of us being united to Christ as the most significant aspect of our spirituality. We are united to Christ. Jesus being baptized, he's doing more than just revealing some appearance of solidarity. He's actually saying, I'm being baptized. What's the consequences of Jesus being baptized? Verse 12, at once the Spirit sent, the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and the angels attended him. Do you understand? John's words, in the, I mean, Mark's words in the beginning of the Gospel of Mark. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. The Messiah, the Son of God. Then at the very end of this text, at once the Spirit sends him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and the angels attended him. Why? The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah and the Son of God. Jesus as a Messiah means he is the anointed one. He is the Savior. He is the one who is going to be bound to his people and suffer consequences for their sake because he's able, because he is the Messiah. You know, this whole series is about the person and the purpose of Jesus. Jesus, one of his purposes is to be the Messiah to be the deliverer, to be the savior, to be the gracious one, to be the one who comes down from heaven and says, I am with you and you are with me. I will remain in you. You will remain with me. I'll be baptized just like you. 
And then one day, my people will use baptism um, throughout the ages as a reminder that we are what? United to Christ. You want to know what baptism really means? It means we are united to Christ. Jesus is saying, you belong to me. I'm the Messiah. But not only that, I'm actually the very son of God. Mark is writing this letter so that we can understand that Jesus is the son of God, which gives him incredible authority, supreme authority, and that he's the Messiah. That he's the one who can actually deliver. That he's the one who can come into your wilderness, whatever it is. And all of us have wilderness experiences. Maybe you're in the middle of one. Maybe you're just coming out of one. Maybe you're headed into one. It's 2020, so we're all in one, right? Jesus comes into the midst of the wilderness, and what does he do? He battles the forces of evil. He denies himself. He fights on behalf of the people of which he is united. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. Now, that's crazy that God would do that. You understand, it's the only spiritual approach in the entire world that says that God comes to us and walks with us and is bound to us and suffers for us so that we can be the beloved of God, so that we can experience what it's like to be a treasured possession of God. Even if our own sins might get in the way, Jesus says, no, I do battle with the forces of darkness. I'm the Son of God. I am your Messiah. Jesus is not what you expect in many ways. In fact, his disciples and the people who are watching him, they don't know what to do with him. You know, it's not until Acts chapter 10 where, where Peter finally goes, oh, I can see this message is for the whole world. Where have you been, man? It take, Jesus is not what you expect. You know, I was talking to a friend. He's, um, he's actually our dirt bike mechanic, and I was conversing with him about something because he had just fixed something for us. And Mike was telling me about this guy that he had met over the past couple years. And the way he met him was he, he came to his shop and the, the guy said, hey, my scooter's broken. And the dude looked a little disheveled, right? Matty hair, a long beard, you know, not the most modern of clothes. Um, and what he did was he fixed his scooter for him. And then he would find the guy every couple weeks in the back taking a shower with the hose. And, um, you know, he'd offer him to come inside and spend time with him and tried to get to know him. Well, one time Mike received a phone call from this guy. He said, hey, someone just ran me off the road. Physically, I'm fine, but my bike is in trouble. Can you come get me? And Mike said, sure, I'll come get you. So Mike went and got him and brought him back. And on the trip back, because he said it was about a two-hour drive, on the trip by, back, Mike said, I'm going to ask this guy like, more about him. I mean, he's, I've offered him to sleep in my um, offices when there was bad storms. I've you know, given him keys to the van so he can sleep in there. He, he bathes out back like you know, he's a customer. You know, Tell me about your story. Like, Who are you? And the guy said, well... About 15 or 16 years ago, I moved to uh, the Houston area, and I used to live in Hollywood. He's like, oh, okay, cool. What'd you do there? He goes, well, I, I worked, like, in the film industry. Oh, okay. Like, who'd you work with? He goes, like, you know, Will Ferrell and James Franco and, you know, like, a, a lot of people you've probably heard of. And Mike is like, cool, man. Sure, right? So he gets home, and he Googles the guy, and sure enough, there he is with a much cleaner look, um, and he realized that is exactly who this guy was, that he had actually been in Hollywood 15 years ago producing films with a lot of the, you know, these stars and stuff. And I was talking to Mike about this. I go, how'd that make you feel? He goes, well, here's the thing. I'm quoting him here. He says, I always treat people with love and respect because they're people, and you never know their story or what they've been through. And, and that, that resonated with me because 
what Mike experienced was serving a guy that he had no idea who he really was, but he loved him all the same. It, was, it, it blew up his expectations of the guy, the scooter he went to help pick up on the side of the road, and um, his, his understanding of like who he had been taking care of had completely been transformed, right? When you get to know Jesus, I guarantee you, as you grow in your faith, as you read the Gospel of Mark, as you sort of hone in on Jesus being Messiah and Jesus being Savior, as Mark describes him, it's going to blow your mind. It's incredible. It's so expansive. His love is comprehensive. And what he comes to do is to challenge even the things that we consider to be most dear and replace them with something far more than we could ever expect. The big question here in all the characters of, of what we've read about here, whether it's Mark or Isaiah or John the Baptist or Jesus or God the Father or the Holy Spirit, which of these characters do you most identify with? I hope it's the one character I haven't talked about, right? There's an audience for the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark is being written so that people can learn about the story of who Jesus is, both his person and his work, the purpose of why he came, what he came to accomplish, and who he really was. We're actually not supposed to come up with our own ideas about who Jesus is. We're supposed to read the scriptures and say, okay, who are you? That's what the Gospel of Mark is. The big question for us to consider ourselves is, what will I do with the reality of what I'm learning about who Jesus is? Do I believe he's the Messiah? Do I believe he's the anointed one? Do I believe he's the God of heaven and earth or not? If he's not, this story is a cute little story you can toss off to the side. It's nice, sort of, until you read more about it. But if Jesus is actually who he says he is, if he's really the king of creation, if he's really the Lord of heaven and earth, if he's really the son of God with supreme authority and the Messiah who has an immeasurable love for us, then actually, the more you encounter him and the more time you spend with him, you're going to discover things about him that are going to amaze you because of who he is, but also because of who he, what he wants to do in your life. This picture of Jesus being baptized in the Jordan, it's a good picture to have in your mind because it is all about us being united to Jesus. That's such an important thing for you to consider as a follower of Christ. You are not who you can come up with before God. That's not who you are. You are a beloved of God because of what Jesus has done, because he's the Son of God and he is the Messiah. The consequence of Jesus being united to us is that he is sent out into the wilderness for 40 days. You ever tried to do a diet for 40 days or deny yourself candy for 40 days? Jesus is in the wilderness for 40 days battling Satan himself and his own struggles all the time knowing that at any moment he could just say, enough already. Jesus experiences the consequences of being united to us, and he comes what? Out of the wilderness and begins his ministry. That's what the rest of the Gospel of Mark is all about. Us following Jesus after battling in the wilderness to reveal just how much he loves us. Let me read to you, this is from 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you, so Isaiah, right, John the Baptist, they searched intently with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. 
What is it about what Jesus does that boggles the mind even of angels? That he would love us at great cost to himself. That's the mystery. In an angelic sense, angels can barely understand his deep affection for us because it cost him so much for us to experience it. But that's the message of the gospel. The person and the purpose of Jesus is to come so that we might know who God is. This is a good verse for you to memorize. Romans chapter 5, verse 8 says this, God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. What Jesus is doing, he is demonstrating the love of God for us. You want to see what the love of God looks like for us? Romans chapter 5, verse 8, the gospel of Mark is it. How much does God love the weak? What is God going to do with the sick? How is God ultimately going to help me process the reality of death? The gospel of Mark attacks all those things. Jesus walks this path, conquers both his and our enemies so that we no longer have to fear. That's how powerful and good he is. Let me, let me tell you, this is a, the final kind of illustration story here. In January of 2020, there was an article posted in Psychology Today, which is a, it's a professional magazine for psychologists, right? So timing, right? In January of 2020, they post this article about the 10 things that people are most afraid of. I'm not going to read all 10 to you, but let me read you the top five, the fifth being the first one I read. The number, the number five thing that people were, uh, that unsettled them most, provoked the most fear was uncertainty, right? 2020 is coming. Number four, rejection. I can understand why that would be uh, something to be afraid of. Failure. Loneliness was the second thing, you know. And the number one thing that people were most afraid of, according to this study and this research done by Psychology Today, wherever they got their results, was this, change. Oh, man. You know, there's been so much change this year. God hasn't changed. Jesus is still the Son of God. He's still the Messiah. But there's been a lot of change this year. Why do you think it is that change is so unsettling for people? I don't actually think it's just change. Like if I were to tell you, I'm going to institute a change in your life. Every first of every month, I'm going to deposit $1 million in your bank account. Would you welcome that kind of change? Like that would be kind of fun maybe. So it's not change in and of itself. What is it about change that is um, so provoking a fear? I think it's this. It's the intention or the cause and the outcome of the change. The cause of the change and the outcome of the change. The good news for us, as those who follow Jesus, is he is very much interested in bringing change. But the cause of his change is love. He's demonstrating his love. He wants to bring change into your life. And the outcome of this change is going to be resurrection. It's going to be life. That's God's intention for us in the gospel. Whatever wilderness you're in, whether it's the wilderness of marriage, we've all, you know, for those of us who've been married a while, we know that wilderness well. Don't suffer it alone. If you're in the wilderness of vocation, trying to figure out what you're going to do with your life, you know, don't do that alone. God invites you to share that with him and with his people. Maybe it's the wilderness of, of um, just the present wilderness of trying to hack into helping your kids get through school. You know, we're definitely going through that. Maybe it's the wilderness of your own personal spiritual journey of what does it mean for me to know God? Like, where is he? I want to tell you this. God promises to give grace to the humble. 
He promises to send His Spirit to all those who want to know Him, no matter what your past is, no matter where you've been, no matter what your current doubts are. His power is this kind of power, Messiah power and Son of God power. There's nothing more powerful than the love of God. And God welcomes us into embracing that and experiencing it. My prayer for you, my prayer for me, as we make our way through the Gospel of Mark, is that we would, in fact, be changed by the power of God's love given to us in Jesus. This is the Messiah. It's the Son of God. It's the one promised from of old in Isaiah. It's the one that John the Baptist points to and says, hey, he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. It's the one who rushes to be united with us, and the moment he's united with us, he experiences the consequences of that and is sent out into the wilderness, and he defeats the wilderness. God approaches you this morning with that kind of grace and that kind of promise, and you know, take hold of it by faith. Let me pray for us. Father, this morning, as we read the Gospel of Mark and we hear this good news that is written for us, Lord, we pray that your Spirit would apply these things to our hearts. Give us the faith to begin to believe and to see what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Savior. What it means for our lives, for Him to actually be the Son of God with supreme authority, who welcomes us, who is united to us and suffers for us so that we might experience life and have it abundantly. Would you, by the power of your Spirit, Increase our faith that we might be encouraged and restored by you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.